uh, some of you might know, we are part of a series called Christian Paradoxes. And why we call it Christian Paradoxes? Because sometimes the Bible have got different scriptures that seem to um, actually be in tension with one another. And we need to tease them out and go, what does the Bible actually tell us? Because sometimes we can get really confused. And to some extent, I think that I have uh, been involved in churches that have been on different sides of some paradoxes and ended up with possibly a bit of an extreme, unhelpful view because I thought that the other side was wrong uh, when really both sides are right and we have to learn how to live with some of the tensions that the Bible shows us. And last week, uh, we spoke a message about valuable dirtbags. Who remembers that? That was a lot of fun. We spoke about being valuable dirtbags. We spoke about how our value and our worth as human beings comes from the fact that God loves us. However, we need to be careful that we don't get to that place where we don't end up with a theology that God loves me because I am so amazing. That's not what the Bible teaches us. God loves us because God loves us. And our value and our worth comes from the fact that God loves us. We do not have a, a theology, we do not have this ideology of personal intrinsic worth, that my worth comes from the fact that I just am. The, my, my worth comes from the fact that God values me, and so my whole life is then focused on the fact that God loves me and He says that He wants to fill me with His presence. And the Bible talks about it as being jars with treasure in it, earthly jars, temporary jars, if you will, with God's presence, God's presence His Holy Spirit, the gospel, His joy, His peace filling us up. And we also spoke about the fact that the Christian journey isn't about polishing the jars. It isn't about making our jars more presentable so that other people will know how valuable we are, but rather it's probably more about expanding um, how much of God we are carrying, how much of God we are uh, uh, holding in our lives. And the point is that we are all leaky jars. We all have got issues with holding this treasure that God gives to us. And the Christian journey is about learning how to contain, um, not not, not in a control kind of a way, but in a sense of like being filled with God. And that's how we are meant to be seeing our purpose and meaning in our lives. But as I was mulling over that message, it occurred to me that there is more in the Bible that stands as a paradox to it. And so I want to explore that this morning. And, um, uh, but first, I want to uh, just bring us back to a great encouragement that we find in Scripture. And that is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, which says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We have been saved by grace through faith. That is God's grace. It is not by our works. We don't get saved because we worked hard to earn God's grace, because grace is God's unmerited favor. He favors us because He chooses to favor us, and that is the gift of grace, and it is wonderful. So using uh, that analogy of being vessels, the picture is not of us getting to a place where God would choose us because God has already chosen us. It's about choosing to come into His presence and saying, yes, I want to be a vessel for God. And that is the whole point of it. 
But as I was thinking about this, I wonder whether there is this thought that then comes from it that says that because God has already approved of me, because God has already chosen me, He's already accepted me for who I am, that's all I need. Some people talk about this as the ticket to heaven. You've got your ticket to heaven. You're all set and you're ready to go on a rocket ship and off to heaven you go. And that's all, uh, the rest of your life, that's not what counts. That's not what matters. What matters is that you've said that sinner's prayer, which isn't found in the Bible, by the way, but you know, we have accepted God and somehow you've got this ticket and you're all good and off you go. And, and so we get this sense sometimes that there is nothing that we need to do. I heard about this on a podcast one day that said that, um, that anything that bad that happens to you um, must necessarily not be anywhere linked to God because God wouldn't condemn his kids. The Bible tells us that there's no condemnation in Christ, uh, but it also seemed to be saying uh, that, that there's no condemnation, but there's also no consequence. And that is something that I've, I've been thinking through this week in preparation for this. Does, are there consequences to our actions? Are, are there things that I do that matters? How does God see my effort and my works? Do they factor in? Do they, do they count for anything? Is there any point in me trying harder? What happens when I fail? Does that mean that, can I lose God's approval? All those questions come in linked with this. And really, when we look at Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, we love quoting, for it is by grace, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, is Yes, by grace, through faith, that we are saved, not our own doing, da-da-da-da-da. But the very next verse, right, Paul then says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to enjoy the space right into heaven. <laughs> no, it says, For good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And there is this thought that I have when I read this, I don't like the word should. How many people, when your parent tells you, you should do something, what do you do? It's going to be cold today. You should wear your jacket. <laughs> you know, you are going to need water for that. It's like, look after your, I'm going to say sibling. <laughs> you should. And there actually is a whole um, thinking that shouldn't people is quite a bad thing. We shouldn't should <laughs> people. Because when we should people, uh, and we tell people that you should do something, what it ends up doing is that it, push, uh, it pushes a person into an obligation mode. You, you're obligated to do something. Uh, because this is not truly coming from me. It is not really who I am, because you're just telling me, uh, and you're living by all these shoulds. And to be honest, when I've been um, uh, seeing a psychologist about monthly just to make sure that, you know, whatever crap I have in me is being brought to my attention so I can deal with it, um, and, and I learned that there is a lot of shoulding that I live by, especially when you come from a country like Singapore that regulates your haircut, regulates your hairstyle, regulates your clothing, it is a pretty, like, there's a lot of, like, restraints and constrictions. And I was like, man, I don't want to live by all those shoulds. I don't want to serve God because I think I should. I want to serve God because I think He's good and He deserves my 
work, right? But I've also learned that when there's a life without shoulds, there's a life without boundaries. And so when Paul is saying that we should walk in the good works that God has prepared for us beforehand, he's not trying to should you into legalism. He's trying to encourage you to understand the life that is available in Christ. He's trying to help you to see that, hey, if you want to find fulfillment in your life, you need to go back to your maker, your designer. For God, you are God's workmanship. God has designed you. And if you want to know your purpose in life, go to the one who created you for a purpose. And so that is what Paul is saying. Of course you should walk in the good works that God has prepared for you beforehand. And that is not, we have to be careful, that is not linked to God's approval of you. Because he's already said God's approved of you, the verses before. But it's linked to this sense that I've been created for something that is of purpose. And so what we need to understand is that we don't work for salvation, but we work from salvation. But what does that actually look like? What does that actually mean? How does God understand these works and how does God um, uh, put it all together? So I want to explore this further, and this is actually more what I want to land on. And it's found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Now, uh, the book of 2 Timothy was one of three letters that we have that Paul wrote to his protégés, to his uh, two sons, Titus and Timothy. Timothy got two letters, Titus got one. And Titus got a pretty short letter. So uh, um, I'll leave it to your imagination who was the favorite son. And, um, and he wrote these letters just as he was about to die. Paul actually recognized that the end was near, and he wrote these letters. And 2 Timothy in particular, um, commentators say that this was written without a specific purpose in mind. Paul wasn't trying to instruct Timothy about uh, a, a certain situation that he was needing to deal with. That was often the case for why Paul wrote these letters. There were things that were happening that needed to be dealt with. But in this letter, he just wanted to just encourage Timothy to persevere in the journey. So that's the context of this particular letter, and let's jump into it. And it says, remind them, them being the church, of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearer. I want you, uh, this is not the main point, but I want you to just note this, that Paul actually says to Timothy, the leader of the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a, uh, a city that had a lot of philosophers, and they were very steeped in Greek philosophy, and they would often sit around and chat about philosophy. And they would argue about the meaning of words, and they would argue about how things work, etc. And what Paul actually says to Timothy is that such quarrels, such debates does no good. And then he goes on to say, but it actually ruins people. The word ruin is, uh, is, is the same context as destroy. We can be in a place where we are having fun with some debates and discussions and we could end up destroying lives. When we try to tease out and point out and pull out uh, the, 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 the issues in Scripture that we see, we could end up destroying people. I just want you to note that, okay? Um, a little bit later in this, and we don't have time to look fully into it, but it's really interesting. He then brings up a couple of people. Uh, uh, we're going to jump ahead 
to verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, same thing, uh, for, will lead, uh, for it will lead people to more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Paul is like massive on this fact, okay? Paul really wants Timothy to deal with this because it is gangrene that destroys people. And then he gives a specific example. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. I don't want to fully look into this, but the whole point of this, because I was like, whoa, what's going on here? Is that when they were saying that the resurrection has already happened, they were saying that God has already approved of us all. We are already living in the kingdom. There's nothing else that we need to do because the resurrection has happened. The resurrection brings us into the new plane of existence with God, simply speaking. One day we're going to talk about the resurrection more. Not today. But the point is that the resurrection was seen as a turning point where, uh, where we are living in with sin and corruption and us needing to do stuff. That's all done. And so now we're living in a place where Go do whatever you want to do. That's what Hymenaeus and Philetus were saying to people. The resurrection has occurred. God has approved of you. He's given you a new body, a new life. You don't need to work. That's what it was, okay? That's the issue that Paul brings out in this specific um, uh, uh, passage. But I want you to look at verse 15. So we're not supposed to be doing what Philetus and uh, Hymenaeus are doing, but this is what he says to Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Hang on. Do your best. Work towards presenting yourself to God as one approved. But Nate, didn't you just say that we are already approved? So why did Paul tell Timothy, same author, both of Ephesians and 2 Timothy, Paul wrote them both and he said, there's nothing you can do to gain God's approval. And then he says, work towards getting God's approval. Whoa. Paradox. So what's going on here? What, what is Paul trying to bring up to Timothy? Does that mean that God has a process of approving of us and, and maybe disapproving of us? Kind of. And let me pull this out for you using an analogy. See, about 12 years ago, no, 11 years ago, I proposed to Beck, and I said, will you marry me? And by God's grace... Beck said, yes. She didn't say, I'll consider this. She didn't ask for my bank account. She trusted me, and she approved of our relationship. Fast forward, I think it was about nine months, and we stood in an altar in a church, and we said vows to each other uh, that basically said that we would be um, husband and wife till death will part us. In other words, Beck approved, again, of this relationship. Now, over the last 10 years of marriage, I have very honestly become a new person. I am not the same man that stood at that altar. And I can also understand that there is this thinking that, so if Beck liked that guy... Why did that guy need to change? 
if they approved of that fella, then that fella should be good, good to go. And I should be able to test how far Beck's approval of me till death do us part will really go, right? Because I've done the work, I've proven to her that this relationship is something that she wants, and she said, yes. The goods has been sold, the sign has been, the sign has been sealed, the seal has been signed. I don't know what I'm saying. But she approved, all right? She approved. But what did she approve of? Did she approve of me as a person? In a way, yes. But she approved, really, in a way, of the person that I'm also, as far as she could tell, am becoming. And the whole point of a marriage relationship is not that you make a commitment and approval of each other so that you stay the same for the rest of your life. Because we all know that physically that's not possible. So why do we think that spiritually that should be the case? Why do we think that in every other facet of my life, I'm an immature bum and I can stay an immature bum because my wife has already said that she loves me? Well, she loves you for who you can be as well. We have got potential encoded into us. And so over the last 10 years, by the way, guess what are the areas of my life that I've probably changed the most? The areas that actually bring grief and hurt to back. Because why? Because she's approved of the relationship. But when I see that my actions are hurting the relationship, are hurting the person, the other person, the significant other in the relationship, what does it do? In me, it says, I've got to change. She loves me. I love her. And so when I know that there are things that are bringing hurt and pain, what do I do? I flip and work on changing. Because that's what makes a healthy marriage. Not one that is just steeped in this sense of like, we've signed a contract, man. But it's a, the contract says that we are going to do relationship with one another for the rest of our lives. And in the same way, when it says that it is by grace through faith that we have been saved, what are we saying? God is saying, I approve of this relationship. I want this relationship. The whole point of us receiving salvation is what the Bible calls justification. What is justification? Justification is the change of your legal status from sinner to saint. The whole point of that is so that as a saint, you can be in relationship with God. We are made righteous. What is righteous? That we are right standing with God. The whole point of salvation at a starting point is saying, be in relationship with God. And so in the same way, in a marriage, when I find that there are things that are hurting God, what do I do? I change. Not because God hasn't approved on me, but because God has approved on me. It's because He has brought me into relationship with Him. And therefore, that is the driving force behind my change. It is not because I'm trying to make God approve of me more. It's not because I am working towards getting more stamps of approval from God. He's already done that. But what Paul is saying to Timothy is that, so therefore we do our best to present to God ourselves as one approved because you already are approved. So live up to that status. 
I am doing my absolute best to live up to the status of Beck's husband. Am I Beck's husband? Yes. But am I still working towards and constantly adjusting to live up to that status? Yes. Because there's still things that we need to work on. There's still life to be had. There's still things that are going on. But there's something also really important that we have to note here that Paul says to Timothy that you do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And you see, this is another picture that we need to have. We have been approved by God to be in relationship with Him. We are brought into His family. But there's also the sense that we are God's workers. And this is a picture that is constant in the New Testament. Sometimes the whole grace picture forgets that we are still workers of God. The, the Bible calls us soldiers in God's army. We are called priests. We're meant to represent God to people. We, we are His ambassadors. We are His witnesses. We are God's workers. And so what we need to understand, much like in the Ephesians passage, is that God actually puts us to work. If you forget about that, you're forgetting about the purpose of your life. You have been created. You are God's workmanship. Prepared to do works that He has prepared for us beforehand. Our purpose in life is not to make a million dollars. Our purpose in life is not to have a nice house or a nice vacation or to have a comfortable life or to raise kids that are respectful. We are meant to be doing what God has prepared for us beforehand. And as a worker of God, that is what gives us our purpose. And if you think that that's being legalistic, you're all someone's workers. Is that being legalistic? If you want to live in Australia and you don't work, they still call it working for the doll. You're still going to be put into a process where you need to work for some sort of income, where there is still a lifestyle for you. And our lifestyle, and it truly is a lifestyle because we work far more than we do anything else in our lives, maybe besides sleep. And if work is such a bad thing, then why do all of us do it? I know some of us try to escape it, but I've known more retirees who are depressed because they don't know who they are. Because work gives us a sense of identity. And the whole point is that God is setting us to work because that is a part of our identity. The only time we really get to work for God is on this side of eternity. After this, this God's purposes have been accomplished. And by the way, in Ephesians 2 verse 13, so, uh, sorry, 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, so just before this passage, this is what it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So there is already an assurance that if you fail at your work, God's still faithful. Your approval still stands. All right, so this is not a salvation issue, but this is a relationship issue. This is you understanding that God is saying, hey, there are things that we are meant to be doing together. You know, the worst thing about life that I could imagine is that Beck and I have got such separate lifestyles that we don't do anything together. We've been approved for relationship, but we don't actually do anything together. What are you? It's like, that's, that's, that's mind-blowingly stupid. And that's the worst way to do relationship. 
I don't want a relationship with my wife that has got no interaction, no partnership, no cooperation. I thank God that when it comes to our parenting, when it comes to our, uh, our ministry life, we are doing this together. I am running out of time. So, verse 20. You're not going to like this. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This, why, Paul, do you tell us that we don't need to work for God's approval, and then you call us workers, but then at the same time, then you say that there are some of us that are dishonorable. What is going on here? Again, we've got to be careful that we don't see this as a salvation issue, but that we understand this as a worker issue. We are brought into the realm, into the identity of worker in God's kingdom. By the way, eternity isn't about us floating on clouds, okay, and playing harps with naked babies, we call it pedophilia here. I think there's still pedophilia in heaven. That's weird and wrong, all right? In eternity, even though it's sometimes called rest, the Bible also tells us that there will be a level of work. God actually says to people that you will be in charge of cities. You'll be in charge of looking after things in my kingdom because we are hardwired to be productive, we are hardwired to actually want to do things. Psychologically speaking, is really interesting because back in the day, what did people do? They looked after their farms. They actually had tangible results of their hands. And psychology says that there's a potential that that led to lower levels of depression. Whereas now we work on the computer and we tell the chat GPT to do our work for us and then we go home, we take our pay packet and go, what the heck did I do today? Maybe there's a level of productivity, a level of work that we're meant to be engaged with. And so when it comes to this, when it comes to God's work, God's not dumb. If you want to write notes, maybe write the next note. God is not dumb. You can't play his system. You can't be saying, God, I'm going to work for you, but I'm still going to be a bum. You can't say to God, God, I want to do all the fancy, cool stuff that will get me all this meaningful contentedness and whatever blessing, but I'm also going to have affairs. I'm also going to get drunk all the time. I'm also going to do whatever I want to do. See, in God's kingdom, honorable use is given to honorable people. And so the wording is a bit strange here, and I look through the commentaries, and verse 20 says that there are vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. But commentators who have looked at this, they're not saying that some of us have been created with lesser materials. That's not what Paul's trying to say. He's just trying to use the analogy to bring to our mind that there are things that are generally meant to be useful, 
and some are cool and honourable, and we would choose them for honourable use, and there are some that we would just use for very ordinary, common, perhaps even dishonourable use, like cleaning the floors, cleaning the toilet. I don't want to be the toilet cleaner in God's kingdom, just saying. That is dishonourable use. Sorry, my mind just went somewhere. I'm not going to go there. I caught myself back. I did something good. And what commentators have said about this verse is that they're saying that every person is useful. Every person is useful, but not every person sets themselves apart for the use that God has set them up for. And some of us are using ourselves in such a way that we are disqualifying ourselves from more honorable use. And unfortunately, in the media, we are seeing some of this played out. And I think a part of it is that our culture is messed up. And we look at celebrities and we think that that's all good and well. And there are pastors, people who used to set themselves apart for honorable use, and they made mistakes. They didn't deal with the dishonorable stuff that was in their lives, and it led to their downfall. And we see it played out in the media and people get hurt. And that's why I say God's not dumb. He's not letting you do whatever you want to, impacting other people when you are not ready for that kind of scrutiny. We need to understand that we are meant to be set apart for higher use. And when we understand that we've been set apart for higher use, we then set ourselves up to be prepared for that higher use. If I know that my whole life is meant to be a toilet cleaner, I won't do much with myself. I won't care what I look like. I won't care what I smell like because at the end of the day, I'm going to smell like the toilet anyway. But that's not what God has said. He wants us to be honorable and be used for honorable use. And that's why it says in verse 21, therefore, therefore, there are different usages, dishonorable and honorable usages. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable. It's not God who chooses who is dishonorable and honorable. It's us who choose whether we are honorable or dishonorable. You can be a Christian and a dishonorable one. You can be saved by grace and still be dishonorable. You can be saved by grace and never find fulfillment in the church because you have been dishonorable. And I say that lightly because I know what I'm like, and I know that there might be a moment of weakness that completely dishonors everything that God is setting me up for. And so I humbly look at this passage and I go, that's on me. That's on me. I want to be used honorably, so it's on me to get rid of what is dishonorable. Now, you can keep looking at this passage. We are not going to have the time for it, but there are three things that I really want to highlight. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. See, this is what we do for honorable use. We live lives that are holy, useful, and prepared. Holy, useful and prepared. This is the trifactor of honor. Holy, useful and prepared. 
I love this. When I was reading this, I was like, wow, that's, that's a good, easy way for me to remember what I'm meant to be doing. What does holy mean? Holy means set apart for God. In other words, if you want honorable use, you don't get to go half and half. God, you get my Sunday mornings, but I have my Mondays to Fridays. Not good enough. Holy is all of your life. You're not allowed to bring a goat or a sheep for a sacrifice to God that is not holy. This means that it has one defect, it's not allowed in the temple. That's what it used to be like. That's the picture of what it's meant to be. It's a perfect, we're meant to be perfect in that way, set apart for God. We don't get to withhold anything from God. This is not Old Testament, people. This is 2 Timothy 2.21. We are meant to be holy. So when you are at your paid job, you're still meant to be holy. When you are with your non-Christian friends, you're still meant to be holy. God is not like, oh, you're in a different circle now, so be unholy in that circle. Imagine if you have like this wonderful uh, 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 pot that you, there's a displayable pot for food, but then you go scoop out the crap from the toilet once. Will you ever use that again to serve food? No! The answer is no! We're not meant to be dipping our hands in dishonorable use on the side and then on Sunday, I'm so holy. No, we're the same across the board. We come to God and we genuinely, and that's what Freedom Day is about. Freedom Day is not about trying to like, oh, you're good and you're, it is about us going like, God, show me what is unholy in my life. Show me the areas of my life that I've been dealing and, and living in unholy things. I want to be set apart for you. That's the whole point. The second point is to be useful. You know, when I first uh, got a job at my previous church at Centerpoint, uh, my first paid position was called pastoral care admin. And, and I was studying uh, counseling at that time. And so I told Pastor Joel, my senior pastor, oh, uh, so my role is called pastoral care admin. So does that mean that you're going to be sending some people to me uh, to have pastoral conversations? That was uh, something that I really wanted to get involved in. And he said, he's like, mm, no, the, the role is administration. I was like, what a tease. <laughs> you know that I want to be a pastor. You put pastoral care in my flipping title, and then you say, no, you're doing admin. I'm like, but you know what? I look back at that time, because this is probably going back about 15 years ago. I would have been a terrible counsellor back then. I still think I'm not a great counsellor today. So I was far worse back then. I wasn't that useful yet. See, usefulness is about skills. It's about learning. It's about experience. And if you're not useful right now, that's okay. But how are you becoming more useful? So I could never do that. Yeah, do you see the thousands of hours that person has put in into their training and preparation? Do you think I just woke up one day and the grace of God taught me how to play guitar? I've got calluses on calluses because of what I wanted to do, man. You know, the number of hours I put into learning the flipping piano? Partly because of my parents. <laughs> Praise the Lord. That they made me useful. Praise the Lord for Singaporean kids that had to do piano because that was the culture. Because they are flipping useful, man. You go to a Singaporean church, uh, how many pianos do we have? About 200. How many guitarists? 
And there are very few Asian drummers. I don't know if you noticed that. Because in Singapore, if you had drums, it's like, like there's no room for it. Like Sam's only learned the drums because he came to Perth. It's true, right? <laughs> but I became useful because I trained for the job, for the work that God had set up for me. If you've got a heart for something, you're going to have to work for it. God's grace doesn't cover laziness. It doesn't cover sloth. It doesn't cover, it doesn't make your dreams come true like Jiminy Cricket. But God desires that you partner with Him on the journey. The Bible is full of this word that none of us like. It's called perseverance. We wouldn't need to persevere if God just gave us exactly what we needed, how we need it, and how we want. But He gives us what we need, how we need, and often not how we want. And we work towards that place of being useful. As a pastor, you know what? I've sat through lessons on how to run a board. I've learned how to read profit and loss papers. Why? Because I want to be useful. And the third one is prepared. Prepared is that you understand that at any moment, God opens a door for you. There's so many stories in the Bible of people that come to Jesus or, or they come to God and say that this is what they want to do and then say, but wait, I need to do this. And what does Jesus say to them? It's like, no. If you come to me and you say you want to live for me, you live for me. And so when I say, let's go, let's go. You ready for that? And this is the trifactor because if you take away holiness, a useful, prepared person is going to crash and burn one day in the media. You take away usefulness, you might be holy and setting yourself apart for God, but you are useless. Imagine having someone here who can't sing. You're useless on the band. Don't join the host team, please. We love you to find a use that you are useful for. And if you're not prepared, you might be holy and useful, but you're always saying no to God. So how do we become people that are set apart for honorable use? We make sure that our lives are holy, useful, and prepared. This morning, we're going to have communion and we're going to close. If we can get the host team, if we can get the band up as well, I'm going to close in just a moment. And the whole point of us doing communion now is because as we consider our lives, I hope that these words ring in your mind. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. And I want to draw back to that point that I was making. This is not about working for approval. This is working from approval. This is about understanding that the sacrifice of God has already been paid, has already been given, that He brings you into His presence not to condemn you, not to tell you that you're less than, not to tell you that you need to work on all of these things, but really just to say, let's do this, baby. Let's have this relationship. I have signed, sealed, delivered the contract, if you want to call it that. Salvation is yours. What you hold in your hand is a symbol of salvation. What you hold in your hand is the sacrifice that Jesus gave for you so that He can say yes to you. God has done everything that He needs to be able to say yes to you.
I want to say that again. God has done everything that He needs to do to be able to say yes to you. But I want us to reflect, how are we saying yes to Him? Are we treating Him like a ticket dispenser to heaven? Or do we understand that He's calling us into relationship? And He's calling us to a higher purpose, a higher life, a life that He's prepared and He's designed you for. So Jesus, I pray this morning that we examine ourselves and that we find where we are perhaps unholy, unuseful, or unprepared. And I pray that you help us say yes to you, just like you have said yes to us. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.